After the execution of the Earl of Argyll, she experienced for some weeks much mental anxiety from the great danger to which Sir Duncan was exposed of falling into the hands of his enemies. By a proclamation dated June 24, 1685, for apprehending the leading men who had been concerned in Argyll's attempt, a reward of 1,800 mercs was offered to such as should deliver up Sir Duncan, dead or alive, to the government, and it was declared treason to harbor, reset, or correspond with him or any of the persons named in the proclamation. Footnote, Wadrow's History, Volume 4, page 312. End footnote. But at the risk of incurring the penalties of treason, some had the generosity to shelter and harbor him, and this, la and this Lady Campbell piously attributes to the mercy of God who had inclined their hearts to compassion. In such a state of matters, she and Sir Duncan resolved to leave Scotland. While he should go to Holland for shelter, she was to go to England with the view as possible of obtaining from His Majesty the favor of an act of indemnity, securing at once his life and his estates, over both which a deed of forfeiture was impending. His purpose of making his escape, Sir Duncan was enabled speedily to carry into effect. He arrived safely in Holland on the 14th of August. Meanwhile, having left her child behind her, Lady Campbell and her mother, who determined to accompany her to England, proceeded on their journey in which they met with several instances of providential preservation, which, with thankfulness, she desired to remember, though the relation of them is omitted in her diary. Many were the conflicting feelings which agitated her mind in the trying circumstances in which she was now placed. But, like the King of Israel, she had always recourse to God's word in the time of her affliction, and that was the source whence her comfort was derived. After this, says she, quote, being on the road to England at Durham on the 9th of August, 1685, being the Sabbath and among strangers, and at a distance from those who wished for ordinances that had been enjoyed when alone and full of sadness and anxiety, oh, how sweet was that word made, and powerfully intimated to me with bowels of compassion. Romans 8.35 Neither tribulation nor distress nor persecution nor famine, nakedness nor peril nor sword shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. End quote. Reaching London in safety, she continued there for several months and during that period which she calls an afflictive time to both nations as may be memorable to after ages, she and her mother left no means untried to obtain indemnity for Sir Duncan, but from King James the consummation of tyranny, bigotry, and cruelty, who had declared that it would never be well with Scotland until the south of the Forth, where the Covenanters chiefly abounded, was turned into a hunting field, and who had witnessed the limbs of the Presbyterians crushed and mangled in the boot with exquisite and savage glee, she had little to expect and the cold reception she met with from men in power she devoutly contrasts with the benignity and mercy with which the supreme ruler of heaven and of earth ever welcomes the humble suppliant who approaches his throne through Jesus Christ. Quote, Among some sweet hours then, unquote, she writes, quote, Though in a very troublesome attendance at Windsor, where great ones of the world were solicited and waited on with with no little painfulness and charge, oh, how did it give occasion to commend the preferableness of his matchless service, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, 
who does not scare at petitioners because of their blemishes and importunity, there being no want of leisure at his blessed throne, no destitute cases slighted by him, no wilderness condition in a solitary way doth make petitions burdensome to him, but he satisfies the longing soul and filleth the hungry with good things. No distress, peril, or sword separates from his love, nor does he break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. With, with him the weary and heavy laden find acceptance, no difficulty being too great for him who saveth to the uttermost all that come to God through him. End quote. The sight she had of the court when at London was far from exciting in her mind the feelings of envy. Her aspirations were after nobler enjoyments than the pageantry and luxury of a court could, could bestow. She had chosen the better part, and she thanked God that by His grace He had enabled her to prefer occupying a place among the wronged and injured of His people to possessing all the wealth and honors of the world. She thus writes in her diary, and the sentiments bespeak the just views she had of the objects of ambition which become a rational and an immortal being. Quote, London at King's Court. Soon after this, that is, after November 1685, having occasion to see the outward splendor of the court and bravery of such as sit at ease in the world and have all that their heart could wish and are in the height of all their enjoyment, all appeared to me to be according to the Lord's reckoning and was esteemed to be but as shadows and dreams that do evanish and bear little bulk when put in competition with the least amount or degree of enjoyment of God in Jesus Christ and did extort this short meditation. O oh, incomparably matchless choice that can never be suitably esteemed or enough valued, loved, or delighted in, it being found that there is no true tranquility no, no, nor sure peace or comfort but in God, once mine and ever mine, there being no change or alteration in his love. And at this time it was made matter of praise that ever he had discovered to me the preferableness of choosing affliction with the people of God to enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. The blessing of them that are ready to perish be forever upon him who has discovered and taught the meaning of that blessed promise, and every one that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my, name, for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Matthew 19.29 which is seen to be not only full of compensation, but wonderfully beyond any temporal enjoyment that ever was enjoyed elsewhere. His fellowship, his sympathy, his tender mercy, his matchless love, O oh, incomparable felicity and portion, O oh, to give thanks unto the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. End quote. At the time that Lady Campbell was in London, the English Puritans were greatly oppressed. King James was rigorously executing the severest laws enforced against them. Richard Baxter was in prison. John Howe was in exile. Puritan congregations could only meet by night in private houses or in waste places, while their ministers were forced to preach to them in the garb of draymen, colliers, or sailors, and to steal into the houses where their hearers were assembled through windows and trap doors. Footnote, Macaulay's History of England, Volume 2, pages 204 and 214. End footnote. 
To this distressing condition of the English nonconformists, various allusions were made in Lady Campbell's diary. She states that while in London she heard the word preached only in a very private manner, in consequence of the spirit of violence and persecution which at that time raged in London. On one occasion she there enjoyed the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, but the privacy with which it was observed and the means taken to prevent discovery indicate the extreme rigor with which the laws against nonconformity were enforced. It was dispensed in the night time in a private house where a select company had assembled for the holy service. The ministers who officiated were two Scotsmen, Mr. Nicholas Blakey and Mr. George Hamilton, the former minister of Roberton at the Restoration, from which charge he was ejected for nonconformity, and the latter minister in the High Church of Edinburgh after the Revolution. The number of communicants was about forty. Speaking of this sacramental occasion after the Revolution, Lady Campbell says it gave occasion for mournful considerations, and though a great privilege to be admitted to this ordinance, yet now when looking back on the distress and barbarous treatment and hazard that were in those days, which made meeting together about un uncontroverted commanded duties to be a crime, this may heighten our notes of praise and estimation of our privileges that those restraints have so graciously been removed that now we have such gospel days. This is the doing of the Lord, and wondrous in our eyes. Very different was the manner in which the Roman Catholics were dealt with by King James. While the most eminent of the Puritan divines were imprisoned, or in exile, friars and monks crowded the streets of London. While the Puritans were interdicted the freedom of the press, the presses of Oxford were throwing off, under a royal license, breviaries and mass books in thousands. While the Puritans could only meet to worship God in the manner they judged most agreeable to his will, in private houses by stealth, the host was publicly exposed in London under the protection of the pikes and muskets of the foot guards, and the popish worship was conducted in their chapels in the most open and ostentatious manner. Footnote Macaulay's History of England, Volume 2, page 204 End footnote During her stay in the English capital, much of this fell under the observation of Lady Campbell, to whom, as to the great body of the Protestant community, it was just... It was a just cause of grief, as well as of painful apprehension, though it served to establish her faith in the truth of the Protestant doctrines. One time there, in London, 1685, says she, going by a popish chapel with a very heavy heart to see such crowdings so avowedly to this idolatrous worship, two or three of us went to the door to see the manner of their worship who thus were deluded, being told we might, without going in, see them without being seen, which proved otherwise, for being noticed as strangers to their foppery, after standing a while to observe and wonder at this abomination, to see it set up in a Protestant country, we had nearly been knocked down unawares, but narrowly escaped, from which the hazard was seen of venturing upon curiosity, yet blessed be God for this much of instruction, in seeing such a sight as helped to confirm us in the truth of the one mediator between God and man. End quote. At London, her intercessions in behalf of her husband, Sir Duncan, were met with so little success that at the very time of her being there, the government were proceeding against him. 
in his absence to the greatest possible extremity. On the 11th of September, 1685, when she had been in London a few weeks, the Scottish Privy Council ordered the King's Advocate to proceed against him and others before the Justiciary Court for joining with Argyle, and previously to examine witnesses in accordance with the King's letter. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 4, page 320. End footnote. On the 12th of October, he and 32 Argyllshire heritors were cited on 60 days for treason, and on the 14th of December, being called at the Justiciary Court to be forfeited on probation, their case was delayed to the 5th of January, 1686. Footnote. Fountain Hall's Decisions, Volume 1, page 370. End footnote. On the 5th of January that year, when she had been in London nearly five months, he and the Argyllshire heritors already referred to were tried on an indictment of rebellion and treason for their concern in Argyll's insurrection, and their case having been remitted to a jury who brought in a verdict of guilty, they were forfeited in life and fortune. Footnote. Fountain Hall's Decisions, Volume 1, page 389. Wadrow's History, Volume 4, page 355. Fountain Hall says that the witnesses against them were the Laird of Alan Gregg, etc., though under process of treason themselves. End footnote. At length, finding that all her pains at court in behalf of Sir Duncan were to very little purpose, she considered it needless to wait in London any longer. But when about to leave the English capital in March 1686, she was in some difficulty whether to embark for Holland or to return to Scotland. Her affection to and sympathy with, sympathy with her distressed and endeared husband inclined her to join him in Holland, but against such an intention her mother and others endeavoured to dissuade her, judging it would be more conducive to his interest for her to return to Scotland. But at last she resolved to go to Holland, convinced that this was her duty, though she confesses that it was afflicting to her to think of leaving in a strange land and of not accompanying home her dear mother, who had been at such pains and toil for her, and that deference and duty to one of the best of parents made her not complying with her mother's demand very affecting. She accordingly parted with her mother in March or April 1686 to go to some seaport town in England, which she does not name, whence she was to embark for Holland. She was entirely alone, not having even a servant with her, in consequence of the severity of the times. In this place she was detained by contrary winds twelve days, during which time she was lodged in a boarding establishment where she knew no individual save the Christian sweet woman to whose house she had been recommended. But, though removed from friends and acquaintances, she, f she here found favor among strangers, several providential instances of which she refers to without being further particular. Interested in her case from the information which, without her knowledge, he had received concerning her, the master of the vessel, unasked, took his wife along with him to accompany her during the voyage. Both of them were extremely kind to her, and the weather being highly favorable, the voyage was the most agreeable that could have been desired. Landing in Holland at the Brill, she was cordially welcomed by Sir Duncan, who had come to meet her. They went together to Amsterdam, where they had the state's protection, which secured him from the danger to which he would have been elsewhere exposed in consequence of his forfeiture,
and she observes that though the place was lonely and our circumstances not without discouragement, yet we were not wholly debarred from gospel means, which was several times refreshing, as the effect of gracious condescension undeserved, which many times supported us. She adds, quote, In this place the Lord stirred up friends in a strange land, and particularly some who are yet alive of our nation, who were most steadable and friendly, the sense of which is desired to be borne with the greatest gratitude, and whose conversation, usefulness, painfulness, and ministry since have many times been strangely countenanced to some, as doth leave a lasting impression to the charging such of mine as shall I hope survive me, to have the endearing sense of it and to their power, to requite with all suitable just veneration and esteem, leaving it as my desire not to be unmindful of it, since to such I shall to my dying day wish that the Lord may requite them with his special favor, and that grace and peace may be multiplied to them. End quote. The persecution continuing so severe in Scotland as to present little hope of Sir Duncan being soon able to reside with safety in his native country, Lady Campbell returned to Scotland in June 1686 with the design of bringing over to Holland their only child and of settling their little affairs in order to their more fixed abode in that land of freedom. Leaving Sir Duncan for a time with a very sore heart, she went to Rotterdam for a Scottish vessel which was thence to embark for Scotland. The winds being contrary, she was detained in that city for some time, and on the Sabbath she heard sermon in the Scotch church by the minister of the church, Mr. Robert Fleming, whom she terms that great and shining light in his day. So highly did she estimate the public institutions of religion that her detention in Rotterdam over the Sabbath was rather pleasing to her than otherwise, as it afforded her an opportunity of worshipping God in his sanctuary, a privilege which she the more highly prized from the frequency with which she was deprived of it in her native land. The text from which she heard Mr. Fleming preach was John 11.40. Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? On the following Sabbath she was on board the vessel which lay at anchor in the Brill, and heard two sermons preached by Mr. William Moncrief, minister at Largo, after the Revolution. Footnote. For some for some notices of Mr. William Moncrief, see Dr. Fraser's Life of Ebenezer Erskine, page 209, and his Life of Ralph Erskine, page 146. End footnote. The son of the excellent Mr. Alexander Moncrief, minister of Schooney, who had been ejected for nonconformity after the Restoration, who was coming over to Scotland in the same ship. From these words in Psalm 45, too, Thou art fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. By which she was much comforted and confirmed. Next Sabbath they were tossed on the ocean by a great storm which drove them back on the coast of Holland. But when the seamen were able to cut the mast, the tempest was allayed. The Sabbath after, they lay at anchor at the Bass, where a considerable number of the Presbyterians were then in confinement. And she had a sweet day of the sunshine of the gospel, Mr. William Moncrief having preached from these words in Isaiah 32, 2. A man shall be in hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest. 
as rivers of water in a dry place, and as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. On landing at Leith, the severity of the persecution suggested it to her as prudent to disguise herself to escape discovery, and she came in disguise to the house of her dear friend Mr. Alexander Moncrief, the ejected minister of Scooney, who was now residing with his family in Edinburgh. Here, says she, I had much kind welcome and sympathy from some who are now in glory, and others of them yet alive, whose sympathy and undeserved concern is desired to be borne in mind with much gratitude. But any uncertain abode she had was with her dear mother, Sterling, of whose tender care and affection for all her children and for her in particular, in particular she speaks, as we have seen before, in the highest terms. She continued in Scotland eight weeks, during which time she looked after the worldly affairs of Sir Duncan, which had then a very ruined-like and discouraging aspect. On her way to Holland with her only child, she encountered a great storm at sea, and was even in hazard of being swallowed up by the waves, under which, though she was in an anguish of spirit through excessive fear, she got her burdens devolved on the blessed rock of ages. On her arrival, she was welcomed with much affection and kindness by Sir Duncan, and they took up their residence in Rotterdam. In this city, our expatriated countrymen enjoyed singular religious advantages. Mr. Thomas Halliburton, professor of divinity at St. Andrews, footnote, Lady Campbell was personally acquainted with Halliburton, and to her, his memoirs published after his death were dedicated by his widow, and footnote who in May 1685, when a boy, went with his mother to Rotterdam, whither she was obliged to retire by reason of the hot persecution, thus writes in his memoirs, quote, On the Lord's Day we had three sermons and two lectures in, in the Scots Church. On Thursday, a sermon there likewise. On Tuesday, one of the suffering ministers by turn preached. There was a meeting for prayer on Wednesday. On Monday and Friday nights, Mr. James Kirkton commonly lectured in his family. On Saturday, he catechized the children of the Scots sufferers who came to him. End quote. Footnote. Halliburton's Memoirs, Part 2, Chapter 1. End footnote. Lady Campbell speaks of the powerful and great means of which she had a constant succession under dear Mr. Fleming's ministry and in her diary there are many entries containing notes of the sermons she heard preached, both on ordinary Sabbaths and on sacramental solemnities in the Scottish church at Rotterdam by Mr. Fleming and other exiled Scottish ministers. In addition to other religious services in which they engaged, it was the custom of the English and Scottish ministers who had taken shelter in Holland from the persecution to meet together once a week, or more frequently, for solemn prayer on account of the distressing state of affairs in their native land. Lady Campbell was in the habit of attending these meetings, and she was wont to tell a curious anecdote of John Howe, the celebrated English nonconformist divine. Footnote, Howe had gone abroad in 1685, and after traveling in various parts, settled at Utrecht in 1686. End footnote strongly illustrative of the uncommon fervor of his devotion. The anecdote which we give in the words of Wadrow is as follows, quote, 
Mr. John Anderson tells me, 1726, he had this account from Lady Henrietta Campbell of the great Mr. Howe. He was a he was a man that was the most mighty wrestler in prayer she ever knew, and gave one instance when in Holland, where he was about 1686. The banished and refugee ministers met weekly or oftener for prayer, where Lady Henrietta used to be present. After some had prayed, Mr. Howe's turn came. He continued long and with, much, and with such fervor that the sweat streamed down. Mrs. Howe, his wife, knowing his manner, and that it would not divert him in time of it, she stepped to him gently, took off his wig, and with her napkin dried the sweat and put on his wig again. This she was obliged to do twice, if not thrice, and Mr. Howe seemed not to know what was done to him. End quote. Footnote. Wadrow's Analecta, Volume 3, page 303. End footnote. This exactly corresponds with the description Dr. Calamy gives of Howe's gift of prayer. Quote, he had great copiousness and fluency in prayer, unquote, says that writer. Quote, and the hearing him discharge that duty upon particular sudden emergencies would have been apt to have made the greatest admirer of stinted forms ashamed of the common cavils and objections against, against that which is usually called extemporary prayer. End quote. Footnote. Calamy's Life of Howe, prefixed to the imperial octavo edition of his works, page 1. End quote. End footnote. footnote. In the middle of July 1688, Lady Campbell was necessarily called to The Hague, there to attend the court several days, having probably been invited by William, Prince of Orange, and Princess Mary, to come along with Sir Duncan, who shared in the councils of William, in reference to the contemplated invasion of Britain. The tyranny of James, having now become intolerable to the great majority of his subjects of all parties, with the exception of the Papists. She went, though not without great reluctancy and fear of the consequences. But the sight of the splendor of that court excited in her mind more agreeable feelings than the sight of the splendor of the court of King James. It being a satisfaction, she remarks, to see great ones so promising and even blessing-like to the church and people of God, and that hitherto had been such a support to many in distress. And the, enterprise, and the enterprise of the result of which, from the failure of Argyle's attempt, she was not without apprehensions, was destined to have a more successful issue, being the means appointed by Providence of delivering these lands from the grinding yoke of tyranny and persecution. Preparations were some time vigorously made for this undertaking, and when William's intentions became known, they met with the cordial approbation of the great body of the population in Holland. The English and Scottish refugees embarked in the cause with ardent enthusiasm, and the Dutch poured forth their earnest and united prayers to Almighty God for its success. Lady Campbell thus describes the state of public feeling in Holland. Quote, About this time, September 16, 1688, the great design came to be above board of forces coming to Britain with the then Prince of Orange, wherein the Lord did marvelously appear in animating of hearts to a joint concurrence with this project, so that more than ordinary concern might have been read in the generality of persons who were well-wishers to the Protestant interest. And after preparation made and joint supplication appointed to be through all the churches and in the seven provinces, 
though there wanted not great difficulties to grapple with because of apparent danger and hazards, yet when accorded to, and time appointed for this undertaking, there was a wonderful resoluteness and forwardness that possessed in general all who were honored with this undertaking, as if the Lord had endued them with more than ordinary resoluteness and courage, which must be ascribed to his doing only, who moved this design and carried it on for our deliverance, for which, oh, to be helped forever to bless his name. End quote. Sir Duncan was among those who were appointed first to embark, and they attended in their ships nearly three weeks before the rest were ready. Previous to his embarkation, Lady Campbell took leave of him with a heavy heart, being now left alone in a strange country, and not knowing but the event might be terrible. Yet, says she, quote, there being so much at stake, each appeared to add his might with more cheerfulness, resolution, and submission than another, more than without immediate support could have been attained. That was made a time of more than ordinary concern, and even of liberty and enlargedness often, which were very, was very supporting, and did much sweeten what otherwise would with great difficulty have been got over. End quote. About a fortnight after the embarkation of their friends, she and others, having been told that some of the ships lying at anchor were lost, a report to which they gave the more credit from the stormy and unfavorable state of the weather, resolved to visit their, their friends, though at a distance of two days' journey, in order to ascertain whether or not the report was true, that in case of finding them safe, they might supply them with fresh provisions. Having traveled to the neighborhood of the place where the ships were anchored, they went out to them in a small boat, in doing which their lives were exposed to imminent peril, the boat having been cast in among the fleet in a mighty storm. Missing Sir Duncan, Lady Campbell was greatly discomposed, but on learning that no harm had befallen him, her mind was calmed, and she with her fellow visitors were safely brought to land, notwithstanding the severity of the storm. She returned to her dwelling at Rotterdam on the Friday, and for some days after, after experienced much weariness and great indisposition in consequence of the fatigue and anxiety to which she had been subjected. At length, William's fleet, which consisted of more than 600 vessels, being prepared for sailing, he took farewell of the States of Holland at a solemn sitting they had on the 16th of October, on which day also public prayers were offered up for him in all the churches of The Hague, and accompanied by the deputies of the principal towns to his yacht, he arrived in the evening at Helvetslies and went on board the Brill, the name of the vessel in which he sailed. On the 19th of October he put to sea with his armament and traversed before a strong breeze about half the distance between the Dutch and English coasts. Then the wind changed, blew hard from the west and swelled into a violent tempest. The ships scattered, and in great distress regained the shore of Holland as they best might. The Brill reached Helvetslies on the 21st of October. Footnote, Macaulay's History of England, Volume 2, pages 476 to 480. End footnote. Lady Campbell describes the magnificent appearance of the fleet when about to sail, the storm by which it was, in, it was compelled to return, and the merciful providence observable even in this apparent disaster. Quote, About this time all the fleet were in readiness to sail, and jointly met to attend King William in this great expedition to Britain, multitudes being gathered together on steeples to see this splendid sight. 
which in rank and file went out this evening as was esteemed a beautiful sight for grandeur, order, and comely fortitude, in this so great a design that though there were some whose hearts were trembling with them, yet the most were rejoicing as if the arm of man could have accomplished this marvelous achievement, which ere the next morning were seen to be ascribed to a higher hand, this night there being raised so formidable a storm as did wholly scatter all his fleet, so that generally there were there were few this night who had any concern but were put to their peremptors and sad conclusions, fearing them to be wholly lost. The dear princess and several besides sitting up the most of the night, and many were running to the coast to observe what shipwreck could be discerned. It was a most terrible night by both sea and land, but oh the wonderful condescension of the Lord who knew better than we did how to deliver and how to forward his own work that made this the means of carrying it on. For had they gone forward to their intended landing, they had met with a great army intended to have routed them. But besides, several of those vessels having fallen short of provisions by long attendance, and also they not having landing boats, all this made it soon after a marvelous providence that they were made by this storm to return without the loss of one man, and with the loss of only one vessel. Footnote. Macaulay says that no life was lost and that one vessel only had been cast away. History of England, Volume 2, page 477. Wadrill has the following entry in his Analecta. Quote, Mr. John Anderson tells me that he had this from Lady Henrietta Campbell, who was in Holland at the time, that there were very great measures of a spirit of prayer in Holland at the time of the Prince of Orange's coming off, that it was a very remarkable mercy to his design that he was put back the first time, for the French squadron was at sea and would certainly have attacked him, and through some mistake their boats and several other things necessary for landing were left behind them, without which they could have done little, though they had gone afterward, though they had gone forward. Volume 1 page 280 to 282. End footnote. And some horses that were thrown overboard. The ship that King William was in was among the first that in safety returned to the joy and rejoicing of all Holland, and particularly those of us who had our nearest and dearest relations embarked with him, all returning in safety to Helvet's Lies, where their abode was more than, was more than twelve days till they were wholly recruited again. End quote. She adds, quote, My dear husband was among the first that arrived and gave account of their safety, the seeing of whom so unexpectedly made me almost at the fainting with the surprise, which was a pleasant disappointment and ground of thankfulness that the Lord had been so gracious in disappointing the hopes of enemies and fears of friends. End quote. In the same evening on which Sir Duncan arrived, she went with him and some friends by water to Helvet's Lies, where, from the crowded state of the place, they, like many others, remained together in the harbor, in the yacht, for three or four days, till they found accommodation in a Dutch minister's house, in a country village nearby, providing for themselves their own provisions. This village contained at this time many of the Scots and English, not less it was computed than several hundreds. When William and his fleet were ready to put to sea a second time, she and others were allowed to attend their friends to their ships, which, says she, 
was a beautiful sight to see such a number gathered together for the Protestant interest in a time when so great an invasion was made on it and our properties. On the night on which the fleet set sail, which was on the evening of November 1st, she was in a state of no inconsiderable agitation and anxiety of mind, not only from the hazards that appeared to those in whom she was particularly interested, but even from the hazards so public and great a design might be exposed unto if the Lord did not signally appear for them. It seems to have been about this time that she dreamed the dream recorded by Wadro, which we shall here give in his own words. Quote, Mr. John Anderson of Kirkmaiden, says he, tells me that he hath this from Lady Henrietta Campbell that she went with her husband to the shoreside when he embarked with the prince and after she came back she slept but little that night that in the morning after she had fell to a slumber and had this remarkable dream which she communicated to the countess of Sutherland and the prince of Orange who were much taken with it she thought she was at the fleet and they came safe to the coast of England and at the place where they landed there was a great high brazen wall before them she thought they resolved to land, and when they were endeavouring to get over it, it fell down before them in Bibles. She could not but reflect afterwards upon the success of the expedition, upon this as some emblem of that clear knowledge and the settlement of the gospel and the use-making of the scripture in opposition to popery that followed the happy revolution. This person is a lady of great piety and good sense, and no visionary. End quote. Footnote. Wadro's Analecta, Volume 1, pages 280-282. Wadro says in another part of the same work, quote, Mr. John Anderson, May 1725, tells me several accounts of Lady Henrietta Campbell, which I believe are set down in some of the former volumes. That of her dream about the Prince of Orange being driven back and the wall falling down in Bibles. That about a fellow coming into her asking charity with a drawn dagger that about the Lord supplying her straits after a sweet scripture was borne in upon her by means of the princess of orange end quote Waters Analecta volume 3 page 196 the last two anecdotes he referred to are not recorded in the preceding volumes of the Analecta as Waters supposes and are probably now lost end footnote the day after the fleet put to sea, Lady Campbell and such others as had been taking farewell of their friends journeyed to their respective homes, some of them on foot and some of them in wagons, with more hope as to the issue than, since the last disaster, they had been able to entertain. Not long after this, the Prince of Orange's undertaking being crowned with complete success and James being driven from his throne, she embarked in a vessel bound for England on her way to Scotland, where she and Sir Duncan had now the prospect of being able to live in peace, and of having restored to them their forfeited estates. But, pleasing as was this prospect, it was not without a pang that she left the land of her exile, to which, as the sanctuary that had sheltered her from persecution, her heart had contracted a grateful attachment, and it was particularly painful to her feelings to part with Mr. Fleming, from whose ministry and social intercourse she had often derived much comfort and edification, so that, to use her own words, this parting was as the child being bereaved of the breast. 
On her arrival at London, she found the cause of William universally popular, and matters very different from what they were in 1685 and 1686, when, during her abode in the capital, she could hear sermon only by stealth, and observe the Lord's Supper only during the darkness of the night in a private house. Now, dissenters could assemble to conduct religious worship in the most public manner, without any to make them afraid. Quote, there were acclamations and rejoicing, unquote, says she, quote, even in the streets for this great deliverance. And oh, how refreshing was it to find that the Lord had opened a door so marvelously to gospel privileges, which, at leaving the place, London, there was so little probability of. But what marvelous things are with him who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. And as this work was memorable and great, so it did greatly endear the instrument by whom it was carried on. End quote. She speaks in a similar manner of the state of Scotland on her reaching Edinburgh. Quote, Our arrival at Edinburgh had its own mixture of great mercy and of that crowning mercy of being welcomed with access to the purity of gospel ordinances, being the sweeter on our calling to mind the restraint and difficulty that formerly had been seen there in later years when made the seat of bloodshed and oppression. End quote. Footnote. Here the, here the diary of Lady Campbell closes. End footnote. On the triumph of the cause of civil and religious freedom in which Lady Campbell and Sir Duncan had suffered so much, they were fairly entitled to some compensation, and William, when Prince of Orange, having promised to remember them, she reminded Lord Melville, Secretary of State for Scotland, of their claims. Footnote. See her letters to that nobleman dated January 6, 1689, among the Levin and Melville papers, page 44. End footnote. Nor was the government of William backward to do them justice, by at least restoring them to their own. Sir Duncan's name appears among hundreds of other names in the Act passed in the Scottish Parliament, July 1690, rescinding the forfeitures and fines incurred by the Covenanters on account of their principles since the year 1665, and restoring such of them as were then alive, or their heirs and successors, to their goods, fame, and worldly honors and warranting them to use all lawful means for the recovery of the same. And on the 8th of July that same year, the Parliament, on hearing read Sir Duncan's petition, formerly referred to in relation to the cruelties, robberies, and oppressions committed on himself and his tenants after the suppression of Argyle's insurrection, grant warrant for citing the persons named in the petition as the perpetrators, and the representatives of such of them as were dead to come peer before them within fifteen days after the charge to answer to the complaint, provided the Parliament should be sitting and otherwise to come peer before the Commission, appointed by an act of this Parliament entitled Act for Rescinding Fines and Forfeitures. The hearing of the parties and the taking probation upon the points of the complaint being remitted to the said Commission who were to report to the next session of that or a subsequent Parliament. Footnote. Acts of the Parliament of Scotland. End footnote. In the Parliament of June 1693, the case relating to the repairing the damages of the baronet and all other similar sufferers is remitted to the Lords of the Privy Council in order to their sending a recommendation in reference to that matter to His Majesty. Footnote. 
Acts of the Parliament of Scotland. End footnote. After the revolution, Sir Duncan, intending to reside with his family at Loch Gare, proposed in a letter to the Synod of Argyll, dated 4th of August 1690, that a church should be planted there, promising to dedicate the tithes he had about that place as a part of the stipend of the minister to be settled, and offering to build a suitable church at his own expense. The proposal was favorably received, but for reasons unknown to us, it was never carried into effect. Footnote. New, New Statistical Account of Scotland. Glassary, Argyllshire, page 694. End footnote. Sir Duncan was a commissioner for the Shire of Argyll in the Scottish Parliament for several years after the Revolution. He died in November 1700, as we learn from the records of the Scottish Parliament. For on the 14th of that month, a petition from the freeholders of Argyllshire was read before the Parliament, craving warrant to elect a commissioner in his room, in respect of his apparently hopeless indisposition, his own demission being read at the same time, and in the proceedings of the ninth of the following month he is mentioned as deceased. It is a singular fact that in his last days Sir Duncan embraced the Popish religion, in the petition of the freeholders of Argyllshire, another reason besides his sickness why they crave warrant to elect a commissioner to the Parliament in his place is that, quote, several members of the Parliament had declared that he owned himself to be a papist, end quote. This was a source of deep affliction to Lady Campbell, for, quote, his eternal interest was no less coveted by her than her own, a duty she ever thought due to so near and dear a relation as a husband, end quote. But from a passage in her diary there seems some reason to believe that on his deathbed his sentiments underwent an important change and that he built his hopes of heaven upon a more substantial foundation than the delusions of popery. After adverting to her solicitude about the welfare of his soul and the enlargement she obtained in pleading at the throne of grace in his behalf, she adds, Quote, who I desire to who I desire to hope obtained mercy as a thought of great consequence to some all the days of their life, that in a manner are deputed while in the world to go to the grave mourning for what was wrong in him, and yet not to mourn as those that have no hope. End quote. Sir Duncan was succeeded by his son James, who was thrice married and had by his three wives fifteen children. Sir James died at an advanced age in the year 1756. Footnote. Douglas's Baronage of Scotland, page 62. End footnote. Lady Campbell survived the revolution more than 30 years. Whether during that period she continued to keep a register of her spiritual exercise and of the events of her life is uncertain. If she did so, no such document is now preserved and little of her subsequent history is known. It is, however, certain that she maintained a high reputation to the last for Christian excellence and piety. The following anecdote, recorded by Wadro, places the strict integrity of her character in a very interesting and instructive light. Quote, In the year 1703, this same Lady Henrietta Campbell was with her brother, the Earl of Balcars, at his house. He, with those of his kidney, were then very active in addressing the Queen and Parliament for a toleration, and they used all means to procure a multitude of hands to their address. 
and this was one. They made many believe that it was quite another thing that they were subscribing than it was, and read it otherwise than it was really written, and by this means got many well-meaning people to subscribe it. The The Earl caused his manager of the address to bring it to Lady Henrietta, and told her such and such persons had subscribed, and pressed her much to do it, and she said she would subscribe nothing till she heard it. He read it, and it was pretty smooth. She desired it to read herself, not from a jealousy, but really to ponder it. This would by no means be granted, which made her suspect. She found means to get a sight of the address, and she found it perfectly another thing than was read to her. She reproached her brother with this base dealing with poor people. He begged she would not discover, but she told him unless he would stop it and tear it, she would. And upon his refusal... She acquainted the minister of the place with it, who, upon the Sabbath, did very fully lay out the cheat to the people, who next came in and complained that they were abused and threatened to send a counter-address with an account of their treatment to the Parliament. This, with the things spreading, marred that address effectually, and bred a great breach between the lady and her brother for two or three years." Footnote, Wadro Van Electa, Volume 1, pages 280 to 282. Lady Campbell died about 1721. Mr. John Anderson, Minister of Kirkmaiden, in a letter to Wadro dated October 24th that year, formerly quoted, alludes to her as being then dead. And her death, it is probable, took place not long before, for Wadrow, in the second volume of his History of the Sufferings of the Church of Scotland, was going through the press, which was in the same year, speaks of her in referring to the letter which the Earl of Argyll wrote to her on the day of his execution as then alive. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 4, page 304. End footnote. The particulars relating to her last sickness not being preserved, we have not the satisfaction of receiving from her dying lips a testimony to the truth and importance of religion. But what is of greater practical value, we have the memorials of the Christian virtues and graces which she exemplified. The preceding sketch has been almost confined to the first thirty or thirty-two years of her life, there being few materials for illustrating her subsequent history. But what has passed under our notice during that period exhibits, besides some variety of incident, many features of Christian excellence worthy of imitation. The depth and fervor of her early piety cannot fail to have struck the reader, and the maturity with which the Christian graces attained in her more advanced years fulfilled the promising appearances of her childhood and youth. Casting in her lot in the morning of her days with the persecuted covenanters, she suffered not a little in the cause of the civil and religious freedom of her country. But under all her sufferings on that account, which were endured in the prime of life between the twentieth and thirtieth years of her age, when she might naturally have expected the largest share of her earthly felicity, she displayed a patient continuance in well-doing, a faith in God's love, and a dependence on his providence which bore testimony to the sincerity and the strength of her piety. Inspired with with supreme love to God, she devoted much of her time to secret prayer and the study of the scriptures. 
On the Sabbath, for which she had a high veneration, she accounted it an invaluable privilege to listen to the lessons of piety delivered by the ministers of the word. And when at any time deprived of this privilege, she spent the hours of that sacred day in the secret exercises of religion, in reading the scriptures, in spiritual meditation, and in prayer. The observance of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper was to her the most delightful service in which she could engage. Careful in observing divine providence, she contemplated everything in her lot, all her trials as well as all her mercies, as proceeding from God. And having chosen him as her portion, she was satisfied with the wisdom of her choice, all the things of the world, when compared with him, sinking in her estimation into utter insignificance. In every relation of life, whether as a daughter, a sister, a wife, or a mother, she acted an exemplary part. Warm and generous in her affections, she was a sincere and attached friend. Amiable in her dispositions and engaging in her manners, she almost universally met with kind attentions among strangers as well as among friends. And singularly grateful in her temper of mind, the acts of kindness shown to her under her sufferings and wanderings she never forgot. They were preserved in her memory as if engraven upon adamant. And we find her leaving it as a dying injunction upon those nearest and dearest to her whom she left behind to remember and reward such proofs of sympathy and friendship. Nor is it unimportant to observe how her gratitude to man was mingled with her gratitude to God. For while she refers with delight to the acts of kindness shown to her by man in the time of her affliction, she never fails to trace every such act of kindness to God who, as she believed, disposed the hearts of men to pity and to befriend her. Such are some of the leading features of the character of this lady, on whom God had conferred such abundant grace and who is so well entitled to a place among those pious women of Scotland who, in the face of persecution, kept the commandment of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Grizel Hume, Lady Bailey of Jerviswood. Footnote. In drawing up this sketch, we are chiefly indebted to the memoirs of Lady Bailey, written by her eldest daughter, Grizel, Lady Murray of Stanhope. These, with memoirs of the Honorable George Bailey by the same lady, were printed in 1822 under the editorship of Thomas Thompson, Esquire, from the original manuscripts, which has been carefully preserved in the family of Jerviswood. These memorials consist partly of information which she had received from her mother, who had a principal share in all that is related, and partly of what she had observed with her own eye. The tenderness of filial piety, the ingenious truthfulness, the fine feeling and agreeable good humor with which they are written, and the variety of interesting traits of Scottish simplicity and homeliness of character which they contain, render the narrative extremely engaging. A celebrated authoress, Joanna Bailey, the modern dramatist of the passions from the enthusiastic admiration of Lady Bailey, with which these memoirs inspired her, has adopted her as a heroine of the highest order in the scale of female excellence in her metrical legends of exalted characters. Lady Murray, the authoress of these memoirs, was born in 1693, in the month of, of August 1710, at the age of 17, she was married at Edinburgh 
to Mr. Alexander Murray, the son and heir of Sir David Murray of Stanhope, baronet, by Lady Anne Bruce, daughter of Alexander, Earl of Kincardine. But this marriage proved unfortunate. Mr. Murray's appearance and manners in common society, says Mr. Thompson, are said to have been prepossessing and specious, but it was soon discovered that under a pleasing exterior there lurked a dark, moody, and ferocious temper, or rather perhaps what ought to be described as a certain degree of constitutional insanity, which discolored all his views of the conduct and character of those about him, and made him the helpless victim of the most groundless suspicions, and the most agonizing and uncontrollable passions. The parents of the young lady were at length driven to the painful necessity of instituting a process of separation, on the ground that his wife was not in safety to live with him. To this proceeding Mr. Murray made the most obstinate resistance, and instituted a counter-process of adherence, but a formal decree of separation was at length pronounced by the Commissary Court of Edinburgh on the 5th of March, 1714. Lady Murray continued afterward to live in her father's family. Being the eldest daughter, and her only brother having died in early infancy, she succeeded to her father's estates, but after her mother's death she lived in family with her sister, Lady Binning, to whom, and to her second son, the estates were destined on the death of the eldest sister without children. She died in June 1759. End footnote. Grizel Hume was born at Redbrae's Castle. Footnote. The modern name is Marchmont House, and the present building is modern. It is embosomed in rich plantations, is a plain but stately mansion, and is approached by one of the noblest avenues in the kingdom. The rooms contain an extensive collection of family and historical pictures. End footnote. In Berwickshire, December 25, 1665. Her father, Sir Patrick Hume, after the Revolution, first Earl of Marchmont, was eighth Baron of Polworth of his name, and was descended from a younger branch of the illustrious House of Dunbar, Earls of March, whose origin is traced to the Saxon kings of England and to princes or earls in Northumberland. Her mother was Grizel Kerr, daughter of Sir Thomas Kerr of Cavers. She was the eldest of eighteen children, whom Lady Hume bore to her husband, except two who died in infancy. She was named after her mother, and being from infancy an interesting child, was the darling and comfort of her parents. Her father, who was one of the most distinguished patriots and statesmen of his day, suffered not a little for his zealous appearances in the cause of religion and liberty. In 1674 he went up to London with the Duke of Hamilton and others to lay the grievances the nation suffered from the Duke of Lauderdale's administration before the king. The next year, the Privy Council, having appointed garrisons to be placed in the houses of certain noblemen and gentlemen in several counties for the purpose of suppressing conventicles, and having ordained that the respective counties should furnish them with meal, pots, pans, and candle, several shires refused to contribute for the maintenance of the garrisons, and Sir Patrick Hume was commissioned from the Shire of Merce to complain to the council. Having remonstrated against this imposition as contrary to law, and appealed to the court of session for redress, he was imprisoned in September that year. 
In a letter to the council dated 5th of October, His Majesty approves of their imprisoning Polworth as being a factious person and commands them to declare him incapable of public trust and to send him close prisoner to Stirling Castle till further orders. Sir Patrick continued in prison for many months. The King's letter giving orders for his being set at liberty, though still continuing him incapable of all public trust, is dated February 24, 1676. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 295 and 357. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 2, page 179. Rose, Life of Robert Blair, page 562 and 565. End footnote. Lady Grisel thus began her life during the troubles of the persecution. At the time of her father's liberation from prison, she was little more than ten years of age and soon after those romantic incidents occur in her life which have given her an historical celebrity. From the tact and activity with which, far beyond one of her years, she accomplished whatever she was entrusted with, her parents sent her on confidential missions which she executed with singular fidelity and success. In the summer of that same year, when Robert Bailey of Jerviswood, the early and intimate friend of her father, was imprisoned, Footnote, he was imprisoned in June 1676 and was kept a prisoner for four months. End footnote. For rescuing his brother-in-law, Mr. James Kirkton, from a wicked persecutor, Captain William Carstairs, she was sent away by her father from his country house to Edinburgh. Footnote, Lady Murray says that her mother, when sent on this errand, was at the age of twelve, but from comparing the date of her birth with the time of... Bailey's imprisonment, it appears that she was then only between 10 and 11 years of age. End footnote. A long road to try if from her age she could get admittance into the prison unsuspected and slip a letter of information and advice into his hand and bring back from him what intelligence she could. Proceeding on her journey to the capital, she succeeded in getting across to Bailey though we are not informed in what way. The authoress of metrical legends of exalted characters has imagined the manner in which the little messenger got into Bailey's cell and the circumstances of their interview. She describes Bailey while sitting in his dark dungeon, sad and lonely, as hearing something moving softly toward him and as inquiring on observing that it quickly stood by his side. Quote, Such sense in eyes so simply mild, is it a woman or a child? Who art thou, damsel sweet? Are not mine eyes beguiled? End quote. To which the visitant answers, quote, No, from the red raised tower I come. My father is Sir Patrick Hume, and he has sent me for thy good, his dearly honored Jerviswood. Long have I round these walls been straying, as if with other children playing. Long near the gate have I kept my watch, the sentries changing time to catch. With stealthy steps I gained the shade by the close winding staircase made, and when the surly turnkey entered, but little dreaming in his mind, who followed him so close behind into this darkened cell with beating heart, I ventured. End quote. The legend then describes her as taking from her breast a letter from her father, and with an eager joyful look presenting it to Bailey, who, after reading it and shedding blessings on her youthful head, 
gave her his answer to her father's secret note and then inquired for those she left behind. Quote, in Redbray's tower, her native dwelling, and set her artless tongue a-telling, which urchin dear had tallest grown, and which the greatest learning shown, of lesson, sermon, psalm, or note, and Sabbath questions learned by rote, and merry tricks and gambles played by evening fire, and forfeits paid. End quote. But in whatever way young Grizel got across to Bailey and whatever were the circumstances of their interview, she successfully accomplished the purpose of her mission. It is also to be observed that it was in the prison on this occasion that she first saw Mr. Bailey's son, and that then and there originated that intimacy and attachment between him and her which afterward issued in their happy marriage. From that time Grizel, who was a favorite of her parents before, became still more endeared to them and reposing in her great confidence, they employed her on many adventures which in those times would have been perilous to, to persons more advanced in years, but in which by her finesse and presence of mind, aided by her tender age, which prevented suspicion, she completely succeeded. About the month of July, 1678, her father was again made prisoner in the toll booth of Edinburgh. Footnote. The exact date of his second imprisonment is uncertain, but that it was about the time stated in the text appears from the following sentences, sentence in the grievances of Lauderdale's administration, which were in circulation about June 1679. Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 168. Quote, And Sir Patrick Hume hath been now almost a year imprisoned a second time, and nothing is yet laid to his charge. End quote. Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 161. End quote. But a petition having been presented to the king in his behalf, praying that in consequence of his indisposition he might be removed to a more healthy prison, the place of his imprisonment was soon changed from Edinburgh Tollbooth to Dumbarton Castle, in obedience to a letter from the king to the council dated 4th of September. He continued there a close prisoner for at least nearly a year when he was liberated on the intercession of his English relation and especially of the Countess of Northumberland. The order for his liberation, which is contained in a letter from the King to the Privy Council dated July 17, 1679. Footnote. Lady Murray says that he was confined 15 months in Dumbarton Castle. She must either be mistaken as to the exact period of his imprisonment, or he must have remained in the prison some months after the king issued orders for his liberation. She adds, and was then set at liberty without ever being told for what he was put up all that time. End footnote states that he had been imprisoned for reasons known to his majesty intending to secure the public peace. And, it is added, now the occasions of suspicion and public jealousy being over, he is ordered to be liberate. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 481, and Volume 3, page 161. The Marchmont Papers, edited by the Right Honorable Sir George Henry Rose. Preface. End footnote. Quote. For an imprisonment under such motives... Unquote, it has been justly observed, quote, 
His reputation is not likely to suffer in the eyes of posterity. But if that posterity contemplates the picture of the tyranny which weighed upon Scotland during the Duke of Lauderdale's administration, and to which there is no parallel in the English history of that day, it will do justice to the patriotism and public virtue which rose up in opposition to it. End quote. Footnote. The Marchmont Papers. Preface. End footnote. During the time that her father was a prisoner in Edinburgh Tollbooth and in Dumbarton Castle, young Grizel made repeated journeys to Berwickshire to the place of his confinement to carry to him intelligence or to administer to him comfort. On such errands she always gladly went when sent by her mother, whom affliction and care of the younger children kept at home, and who besides was less able to make journeys. Her mother, too, would have been more narrowly watched and more readily suspected than one of her tender age. When in October 1683 her father's friend Robert Bailey was apprehended in London and sent down a prisoner to Scotland, her father, who was implicated in the same patriotic measures for preventing a popish succession to the British throne, for which Bailey was arrested, had too good ground to be alarmed for his own personal safety but he was allowed, it would appear, to remain undisturbed in his own house till the month of September next year, when orders were issued by the government for his apprehension, and a party of troops had come to his house on two different occasions for that purpose, though they failed in getting hold of him. Upon this he found it necessary to withdraw from home and to keep himself in concealment till he got an opportunity of going over to the continent. Footnote Lady Murray says, quote, After persecution began afresh and my grandfather Bailey was again in prison, her, Grizel's, father thought it necessary to keep concealed and soon found he had too good reason for so doing, parties being continually sent out in search of him and often to his own house to the terror of all in it. End quote. Sir Patrick himself, in his narrative of Argyll's expedition in 1685, says, quote, In the month of September last, 1684, when order was given to apprehend me, and my house was twice searched by troops sent for that end, so as I was obliged to abscond till I got a convenient way of getting off the isle, you know how it was with me in the manner of my living. End quote. The Marchmont Papers, Volume 3, Page 2. Hume of Polwarth, says Fountain Hall, quote, being advertised he was to be seized, fled, and after search not being found, his lady told he had lain two years in prison on a caprice of Latterdale's, and so he did not desire to run that risk of new again, not having a body to endure it and it was Lauderdale's bringing down the Highland host in 1678, which occasioned Polworth speaking against him, September 11, 1684. End quote. Fountain Hall's Notices, page 104. End footnote. The spot to which he betook himself for shelter was the family burying place, a vault underground at Polworth Church, at the distance of a mile from the house. Where he was, no person knew but Lady Hume, Grizel, and one man, James Winter, a carpenter who used to work in the house and lived a mile off, whom they deemed trustworthy, and of whose fidelity they were not disappointed. 
the frequent examinations to which servants were at that time subjected, and the oaths by which it was attempted to extort discoveries from them, made Grizel and her mother afraid to commit the secret to any of them. By the assistance of James Winter, they got a bed and bedclothes carried during the night to his hiding place, and there he was concealed for a month, during which time the only light he had was that admitted by means of a chink at one end, through which nobody on the outside could see who or what was in the interior. While he abode in this receptacle of the dead, Grizel, with the most exemplary filial tenderness and with the most vigilant precaution, ministered to his temporal wants and comfort. Regularly at midnight, when men were sunk in sleep, she went alone to this dreary vault, carrying to him a supply of food and drink, and to bear him company, she stayed as long as she could, taking care to get home before day to prevent discovery. Footnote. In the inscription upon her monument given at the close of this sketch, it is said that when Grizel thus ministered to her father, she was an infant. This is clearly a mistake. From comparing the date of her birth with the time when her father was concealed in the family burying vault, which was in the latter part of the year 1684, it is evident that she was then a girl of nearly 19 years of age. End footnote. She had a great deal of humor in telling a story, and during her stay she took a delight in telling him. Nor was he less delighted in hearing her tell him such incidents at home as had amused herself and the rest of the family, and these were often the cause of much mirth and laughter to them both. At that time she had a great terror for a churchyard, especially in the dark, as is not uncommon in young persons, even at the age of eighteen or nineteen, from the idle nursery stories they have heard in, in childhood. But her affectionate concern for her father made her stumble over the graves every night alone, fearless of everything but soldiers and parties in search of him. And such was her dread of them, the least noise or motion of a leaf made her tremble. The manse of the minister of the parish was near the church, and the first night she went on her pious errand, his dogs, of which he seems to have had more than one, and which, as has been observed, were evidently in favor of the arbitrary party, continued to bark with such incessant violence as put her into the utmost, utmost dread of a discovery. In this emergency, necessity, which is said to be fruitful in invention, suggested it to her mother that the most likely means of getting quit of this cause of annoyance was to endeavor, if possible, to make the minister believe that his dogs were mad, and that therefore it was dangerous to retain them. She accordingly sent for the minister next day and succeeded succeeding in producing on his mind the intended conviction, got him to hang them all, and thus this amiable and affectionate daughter continued her midnight walks without further molestation. There, were, there was also some difficulty in getting food to carry to her father without exciting the suspicions of the servants, and the only way in which she got it was by stealing off her plate at dinner into her lap a portion of the meat which had been prepared. Many an amusing story she was wont to tell her own children after the days of the persecution had closed about this and other things of the like nature. Footnote I should never have done, says Lady Murray, if I had related or could remember all the particulars I have heard my mother tell of those times. 
a subject she never tired of. End footnote. Her father liked sheep's head, and while the children were eating their broth, she had succeeded in conveying by stealth the most part of one into her lap. When her brother Alexander, footnote, Alexander was born in 1675. Like his mother, brothers, and sisters, he shared his father's exile in Holland. After the revolution, having married the daughter and heiress of Sir George Campbell of Cessnock, whose estate was entailed upon her and her heirs, he was distinguished as Sir Alexander Campbell of Cessnock till the death of his eldest brother, Patrick, in 1710, who, though twice married, had no issue when he became Lord Polworth. Having studied law, he entered on the practice of it as an advocate and became a Lord of Session before he was thirty years of age. He was a privy councillor and a Lord of the Exchequer in Scotland and was a Member of Parliament, first for Kirkwall and then for Berwickshire. On the death of his father, he became Earl of Marchmont and died in January 1740. In his religious principles and habits, he resembled his father. I find in his Bible, says Sir George H. Rose, in his own handwriting, his name, the date of Cambrai, 1st May, 1725, and the following note, to be read thrice a year, 1st, 1st of January, 2nd, 1st of May, 3rd, 1st of September. And the memorandum to do the thing is accompanied by the plan for doing it, by a division of the scripture into portions, marked out by him through the whole of the volume for every morning and evening of each period of four months. The Marchmont Papers, Volume 1, Preface, pages 43 and 44, end footnote. When her brother Alexander, then a boy of about nine years of age, had disposed of his broth, the little fellow looked up in hope of getting something else to eat, and perceiving with astonishment the empty plate, exclaimed, Mother, will you look at Grizel? While we've been eating our broth, she has eaten up the whole sheep's head. This occasioned much mirth amongst them all, and then, when Grizel archly told her father the story the next time she went out to him, he was greatly amused by it, and desired that Sandy might have a share of the next sheep's head. During all this time, having a happy natural temperament of mind of being under the influence of genuine religion, Sir Patrick showed the same constant composure and cheerfulness of mind which he continued to possess to the close of life. He sought and found comfort from the word of God and especially from the Psalms of David, which, containing a rich treasure of heavenly instruction and consolation, have often been the means of sustaining and encouraging good men in the time of trial. He had no light to read by, but having previously committed to memory Buchanan's Latin version of the Psalms, he beguiled the weary hours of his confinement and derived much comfort and enjoyment by repeating them to himself. Footnote. While he thus lay, surrounded by the gloomy relics of the dead, Sir Patrick, it seems, was superior to superstitious fears to which a concern for his safety as well as the strength of his mind would doubtless contribute. While he was sitting one night, tradition reports, by a small table with a light, Lady Murray, as we have stated in the text, says that he had no light, but he may occasionally have had one, Engaged in the perusal of Buchanan's Latin version of the Psalms, his eye was suddenly attracted to a human skull at his feet, which on more, on more minute observation appeared to move slightly and at short intervals. 
Although of strong mind and convinced that it was either the effect of optical delusion or that of an imagination powerfully acted upon by the objects around him, still he was not a little perplexed how to settle the question in his own mind, and continuing to observe it with increasing interest, the motion at last became so obvious that the skull seemed as if it was animated and left no subterfuge for his incredulity. The knight, however, with a coolness and composure which did credit to his philosophy and resolved to ascertain by still more palpable evidence the actual state of the matter, applied the point of his cane to the ghastly relic and by a sudden jerk turned it over. This done, the nervous suspense was instantly relieved and a mouse that had been banqueting in the once warm brain of some departed Yorick sprang from its burrow and left the knight to exclaim in words suited to the occasion, To what base uses we may return, Horatio? Beatty's Scotland, Illustrated, Volume 1, page 25. There is a similar story, says the same writer, which we have heard somewhere abroad, and known, perhaps, to some of our readers, which states that in a domestic chapel belonging to a certain chateau, a mysterious sound was heard nightly for a considerable time to the great alarm and annoyance of the inmates and ultimately discovered to proceed from a skull which performed a rotary march along the floor of the chancel, resting and, com and recommencing the movement at short intervals. The construction at first put on this phenomenon is obvious, but the secret spring was not discovered for some time till the skull becoming stationary was found on examination to contain a rat, which had so greatly increased in bulk during its residence in the deserted temple of genius, that the porch through which it first entered refused the same means of retreat. It was therefore during the hard struggle for emancipation that the refractory skull was thrown into such wonderful attitudes, while the rat, it may be added, was suffered from superstitious motives to retain possession of his unhallowed tenement till a rigid fast, having succeeded to days of feasting, should enable him to make his exit as he had made his entrance and leave him once more as poor as a church rat. End footnote. Buchanan's Latin version of the Psalms he retained in his memory to his dying day. Quote, Two years before he died, Unquote, says Lady Murray, quote, I was witness to his desiring my mother to take up that book, which, among others, always lay on his table, and bidding her try if he had forgot his psalms by naming any one she would have him repeat, and by casting her eye over it she would know if he was right, though she did not understand it, and he missed not a word in any place she named to him, and said they had been the great comfort of his life by night and day on all occasions. End quote. As this gloomy vault in which Sir Patrick had taken refuge was no fit habitation for the living, his lady and daughter were contriving other places in which he might more comfortably remain concealed. Among other suggestions, it occurred to them that a hiding place might be formed in their own house, beneath a drawing-out bed in one of the rooms on the ground floor which Lady Grizel kept the key. She and their confidential servant, James Winter, before mentioned, labored hard in the nighttime in making a hole in the earth after they had lifted the wooden floor. The way in which they proceeded was by scratching up the earth with their hands, being afraid lest, had they dug up 
dug it with any instrument, the noise might have created alarm and led to a discovery. So laborious and persevering was Grizel at this task that she left not a nail upon her fingers, and as the earth was dug out, she assisted Winter in carrying it in a sheet on his back in casting it out the window into the garden. Winter next constructed a box at his own house of sufficient size for her father to lie in with a bed and bedclothes, and he bored, bored holes in the box for the free admission of air. To accomplish all this was a work of considerable time, but when it was accomplished, the mind of Grizel was greatly lightened and she thought herself the most secure and happy creature alive. The only fear she and her mother had was that as the hole was underground, water might flow into the box, and to ascertain whether or not this might be the case, they gave it the trial of a month during which time Grizel, having examined it every day and finding no water in it, her father ventured home, trusting to this for his safety. But after he had been at home for a week or two, during which time the hole was daily examined as usual, Grizel, one day on lifting the boards, observed the bed to bounce to the top, the box being full of water. At this she was greatly alarmed and almost fainted, it being then the only place they knew in which her father could find shelter. Her father, however, with great composure, said to his lady and her that he saw they must tempt Providence no longer, and that he ought now to leave them and seek refuge in a foreign land. In this resolution he was confirmed by the news which the carrier brought from Edinburgh that Robert Bailey of Jerviswood had the day before been executed at the cross of Edinburgh, and that all were sorry for his death, though they durst not show it. All intercourse by letters being then dangerous, this was the first intimation Sir Patrick and his family had received of the fate of their beloved friend, and it gave a greater shock to their feelings from its being altogether unexpected. Preparations were immediately made for his departure, and Grizel wrought incessantly night and day in making such alterations on his garments as would serve more effectually to disguise him. It was then necessary to trust their grieve, John Allen, who fainted when told that his master was in the house, and that he behooved early next morning to set out with him and accompany him into England, pretending to the rest of the servants that he was going to Morpeth Fair, at which he had got orders to sell some horses. The parting between Sir Patrick and his family was sorrowful indeed, but after he was fairly gone, though deprived of his society and ignorant of what calamities might befall either him or themselves, they were greatly relieved in mind and even happy in thinking that he was on the way to the land of safety. On the morning on which he started, he made a narrow escape, a party of troopers sent to apprehend him, having come to the house not long after he had left it, and searched it very closely. Nor was it less providential that his servant, who was riding at some distance behind him, had missed him before crossing the Tweed, for during that time the party, having probably went at the house, heard the sound of horses running, suspecting the truth, followed and came upon the servant. But they had left him before he again fell in with his master. Sir Patrick reached London in safety and then went to France, whence, after a short stay, he proceeded to the Netherlands, and thence to Holland. The course of his road he thus describes in his narrative of Argyle's expedition. So soon as I got upon the continent, I stayed but a short time in France, but spent some weeks in Dunkirk, Ostend, Bruges, and other towns in Flanders and Brabant, where I 
traversed before I came to Brussels, whither, as soon as I had heard that he resided there, I went to converse with the Duke of Monmouth, but he was gone thence to the Hague, which led me, after waiting some time for him in expectation of his return, on to Antwerp and so to Holland. Footnote. The Marchmont Papers, Volume 3, Page 2. Lady Murray is incorrect when in giving an account of his route on the continent at this time she says that from London he went to France and travelled from Bordeaux to Holland on foot. Crawford in his Lives and Characters of the Officers of the Crown and of the State in Scotland is also mistaken when in speaking of this same journey he says that after getting beyond the sea Sir Patrick lived a while at Geneva whence he came down to Holland. where he waited on the Prince of Orange. Both Lady Murray and Crawford seemed to confound the course of road which Sir Patrick took on the continent on his escape at this time with that which he took on his escape after the failure of Argyle's expedition. End footnote. Meanwhile, proceedings are instituted by the government against him. On the 13th of November, 1684, the Lord Advocate was ordered by the Council to pursue him for, a re for, for treason. On the 26th of January, 1685, he was denounced a rebel and put to the horn, and all his lands, heritages, goods, and gear forfeited to His Majesty's use for not comparing before the Council to answer the false to the false charge of contriving the death of His Majesty and the Duke, his brother, overturning the government, converse with rebels, and concealing of treason. And on the 28th of January, the Privy Council gave orders to secure his goods and rents to be made forthcoming for His Majesty's use. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 4, page 226. End footnote. He had not been long in Holland when the news of the death of Charles II reached him. On this intelligence, the Scottish and, Scottish and English exiles resident there, who had before been concerting measures for the deliverance of their country from tyranny and popery, became becoming now more alarmed than ever from their personal knowledge of the Duke of York, who was about to succeed to the throne matured a plan for the invasion of England under the Duke of Monmouth and of Scotland under the Earl of Argyll. In this conspiracy, Sir Patrick was a leading man and he accompanied the Earl of Argyll in his expedition to Scotland. After Argyll was taken prisoner and his forces were completely dispersed, Sir Patrick found an asylum in the house of a particular friend, Mr. Montgomery, the Laird of Langshaw in Ayrshire, it also appears that he was concealed at Kilwinning by that eminent religious lady, Eleanor Dunbar, aunt to the then Earl of Eglinton, for several weeks in an empty house till he got out of the country. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com.
We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.